There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. All right, I am thrilled to talk with Jordan Rich. He is a, a radio legend. I don't want to say that because it makes you sound older than you are, uh, Jordan. You're not <laughs> old. But he is a radio legend, a guy I've been listening to forever, a true professional, and one of the great guys in the business. That is the thing you hear about Jordan Rich. He's also author of the book On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. Jordan, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure, and I want to being in my actual studio because we're packing it up and moving it today, but really a thrill to be with you and congratulations on all your fine work. Isn't Thank you so much. Isn't that one of the realities now of, uh, of continuing to do radio and broadcasting that you've constantly have to adapt now more than ever, be on the move. Everybody's downsizing everywhere. I mean, things have changed. You're right. The remote aspect is both good and bad. You lose that sense of community in a radio station that we all grew up with, you and I, but at the same time, it's the technology has made it all possible to, to downsize, to be smaller, to be uh, uh, sharp and keen with a smaller setup and a, and a mobile setup, as you have. I mean, you're doing what you're doing with a, a really good pro setup. So it's, uh, it's, it is what it is. And you mentioned in the book that you liked running the board. And so for, for me and you now, I assume you have total control, which I do like. I didn't like having a, somebody else run the board for me. I like having everything at my fingertips. Well, when you say run the board, for those who may not be quite as familiar, that's the old console that the DJs would run with the turntables and the tape decks and all that. Um, that's the era that I began, and and I think you've touched on that era yourself. And there is a uh, uh, almost like piloting an airplane. It's really fun once you get used to it. And when you get used to it, it never leaves you like riding a bike. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm not a techly, technically uh, – viable person in a lot of ways but when it comes to running the board and having fun with the equipment that's been one of my real joys so where where did you first i know that you grew up in randolph you worked for the radio station there then you went over to um to milton to curry where there's a lot of great a lot of great radio people have come out of uh, curry um so but at what point did you get to be 
more than a kid trying to do radio, but a broadcaster? Yeah, I would say that my real step into the field was in college. And I was very lucky to work at the radio station, 10 watts. You could hear it to the parking lot. But I got a big break from a mentor of mine. Uh, his name is Roger Allen. He was the news director at RKO and one of our professors. I mean, I was I literally went from 10 watts one day to 50,000 watts the next day at WRKO in morning drive. Uh, just a kid, 19 years old, because he had some faith in me, I guess, and uh, had to adjust pretty quickly. And I, I'll tell you, it was it was like a switch went off. And then I was now being heard by people all over New England who had no idea who I was. And I just said, well, this is, I guess, what I was intended to do. So there we go. So a lot of people don't, especially if they're new to broadcasting or or, or the people who take the studio tour, they're always nervous. They're like, oh, my God, I shouldn't be around all this stuff. And this is. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's fine. And, but so you go from from um, from college to essentially working in a closet, not essentially, literally working in a closet at Logan yes. Airport. You've now hit the big time, and there you're doing hits for RKO, right? Weather hits? I was doing weather hits that soon uh, evolved into almost a co-host role. I was four miles away, but the guys in the in the jock seats would lean on me for shtick and bits, and I really loved that. I adapted to that pretty quickly. How do you... How do you, when you, the guy talks down the line and says, we're coming to you in 10 and then coming to you in five or go Jordan, when you're a young, young kid and you know now that the world can hear you, how, how are you calm? How can you uh, be comfortable enough? There's no question that I had butterflies and was, was excited. I call it more adrenaline excitement than nervousness. Uh, I felt confident enough having made a lot of really big mistakes on WMLN, the Curry station. Uh, and that's the, that's the really important aspect of learning in high school and college where mistakes are welcome. You want to screw mm. up because it's the only way you learn. Um, but I also felt uh, because I was in this closet, as you described it, it really was a supply closet at the National Weather Bureau. I wasn't technically in the studio. I was almost as if I was home in my bedroom, <laughs> just hang around. So I would have a, uh, an earpiece, not even a headphone, but a little cheap earpiece that you get from Radio Shack and a little monitor. And I would just have to pay attention. And because I was always on call, they would bring my mic up whenever they wanted to. I had no control over my mic. I sort of had to be Johnny on the spot. And I, I learned a lot out of necessity, out of ad, being an ad libber on the spot and, mm. and just playing without a net. And it, it helped me, helped groom me to do whatever I've done in the in the industry isn't that interesting so it's trial by fire and well since you couldn't see the host when he throws to you or if he asks you a question as far as you know you're talking till eternity you don't you don't you don't know until he's talking back when you're handing it back off to him let me tell you something tom that that is uh, one of the weirdest things when you're actually and, and by the way people are experiencing this now in the communication age we're in where you know, you think you're talking to somebody and they're either muted or they're offline or they've lost the signal and you're just talking in a space. What what you learn is to keep talking. You know, dead air is sacrosanct. We don't want to go there. So it was a it was a case for me of almost learning how to anticipate stuff. Uh, instinctual, it grows as as you get into the business. And you know what I'm talking about, instinctively knowing when someone's ready to rap, when someone's ready to hit in my case, a punchline. And, and 
it it's all ultimately just a, an act of timing and self-control. And so I love the fact that I was in this little supply closet with uh, a bunch of weather guys on the outside of the room uh, eating the donuts I brought in every day. And the jocks, some big names, Charlie Van Dyke, uh, Mike Adams, some really big names who were leaning on me for, for bits and voices and things that I did just to fool around in my own bedroom, you know, with my boys. So it was a great experience and it really taught me a lot. And that is great. And, and similarly, when I when I uh, was producing, I'd have a, a I worked with a host who would ask me a question. He'd do the little okay, get ready to talk thing while I was running the board, and then he'd ask me a question uh, and say, "What do you think about you know texting and driving or something like that? You know uh, the seatbelt law, whatever it was." And as I was answering, he'd leave and go like work on his computer or make a phone call, and it was horrifying, but in incredibly important trial by fire you had no choice if you're not talking there's no noise <laughs> you know so i mean yeah. i think that the learning to do stuff like that is 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 though horrifying well it, well but you're you're a showman you're a ham so you you loved that but but you know I, and i'll get out of the technical stuff in a second i'm just i just get fascinated to, to talk to real yeah. good uh broadcasters how important is it to learn um timing in other words, you know, not I'm not talking about timing back timing or timing out, but for instance, mm -hmm. I guess the real question is being cool under pressure. You're working on something, you're trying to get something on the rack, you're trying to um you know, you have you have a a malfunction and you've got 2 minutes till you're on and then 1:30 and then 1:10 and then 50 seconds and not panicking. And keeping it together as the 20 seconds turns into 10 and you're just waiting for something to happen and waiting for the mic to start working, waiting for something. I mean, is that, the, is that something that you learned at Curry, how to deal with disaster? Or is that? Well, uh, I'll tell you, um, it's such a great question. I've never, never been asked that question. Uh, and I learned a lot of this in high school in, in theater, because in theater, you're live and anything can go wrong. A, a light fixture can fall. Uh, somebody can forget a line. People uh, trip on the furniture walking on a scene. So that idea of live and in the flesh stuff that can happen was always exciting. But um, yeah, the the timing, um, there's two types of time. There's real time and then there's what I call radio time. And you know what I'm talking about, Tom, where I can almost talk for 60 seconds knowing what a 60 second commercial is. I've done thousands of them. But I can also understand when somebody says, and I'm doing the stretch sign, which you you can describe if you want. I'm just it's like I'm twirling spaghetti. Right. <laughs> just get a, you get a you get a sense. Almost, I like to like it this way. When I'm talking with this to students about this kind of stuff, I always have something ready to go in my bag of tricks as a filler if I need to get from point A to point B. And the the imagery that I use, you know, Times Square when that ticker tape comes across the building, yeah. I always invite my students to think about what they want to say and see the words. And even if it's just one sentence, you can build three minutes on that one sentence. Hmm. So a lot of it is that timing is absolutely impeccably important because of, well, the clock that we live by, but also um, two other elements I would say that matter uh, would be one, the ability to not speak, to shut up and listen and really take in what's going on. And number two, um, having enough reference points, enough basic information and knowledge about whatever subject you're starting out to talk about 
so that you can import or export your own thoughts mm. and it's part of the programming. Don't try to fake it, you know, completely and make stuff up, but know a little, enough about what you're getting yourself into. And that's gotten me out of a bunch of jams. <laughs> We're talking to Jordan Rich. He wrote the book on air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. All right, so let's get you into WRKO. It's the late 70s. You've made, you've hit the big time. It's Is RKO still the big, big 68 at that point? It was. It was the big 68. It was 1978. There were... Uh, um, a few rumblings at about a month or two before I started, Dale Dorman, the great morning man, was let go. He wound up at WBBF and ultimately Kiss, but he was let go, which was a major change in RKO. For, he was there for 15 years. And I started right after the great blizzard of 78, so that's why I became the weather guy. But, yeah, it was still music until 81, I want to say, yes. when it went to talk, which it still is today. So in 81, you it, it, it flips format and... Um, you've, you're in there, there, Brudnoy is there at that time. Um, right. The, the, the lineup was, uh, yeah, Brudnoy, Gene Burns, uh, Jerry Williams. What an incredible potent lineup that was Dick Syatt, Harry Sobel and all these guys. And I was there doing mornings for about eight months with Norm Nathan, my all time radio hero. So I was still. So Norm Nathan, I think a lot of those guys, uh, people, uh, talk radio, um, political talk radio, people will know Jerry Williams and Gene Burns and, and Brudnoy. Norm Nathan was a different, a different cat, um, and um, what's that? He would call everybody sport. I remember, and yeah, the old. This is the old. He called himself the old sport. Norm Nathan, Uncle Norm. He was a very folksy. Uh, uh, what I call the the golden age of radio, when you could create characters and create imagery with just the voice and your mm -hmm. brain. And he was one of the most brilliant, in a very down home New England kind of way. And people loved him. He was a sweet lovely guy who was a, a natural disheveled type, you know, uh, <laughs> and he, he was always so, but I learned so much from him. And the major thing was the self-deprecating approach to humor. You know, he never, ever hurt anybody with his mm. sense of, he always poked fun at himself and man, he was funny. He was so funny. Yeah. And he would say, uh, thanks just so darn much or something very much like that. Yes. He would say things like, uh, uh, this is Norm Nathan uh, with Sounds in the Well. Sounds in the Night was a show that he did on HDH Radio AM eight fifty for years and decades, and he was a, a jazz player and he played music. But the yeah, expressions, uh, let's see. Um, of course, bye bye old sport was his uh, sign off. And can you remember the woman he always said goodbye to? At the end of every show, you probably are. Darn, I don't remember. Too young. Marilyn Gorelnik. <laughs> and Marilyn Gorelnik, wherever you are. I mean, just like a right out of the Jimmy Durante playbook. But he had a he had a, a style, sounded a lot like Tom Bosley, if you remember him from yes. Happy Days. Kind of warm. And he was so much fun. And I worked with him, or worked, didn't work with him. I followed him later on at BZ. We'll probably get to that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I remember when later on at BZ, he would, he would sometimes call up... Um, Phone book booths, right? Yes, he would. And he would I, call. <laughs> people would get downright combative sometimes with him. You never know, knew what kind of shady person was answering, and he would play with them and have fun with them. It was such great, organic, funny content. Yeah, that's what I loved about him. I mean, uh, he he didn't have a an agenda. First of all, he wasn't politically motivated. He, he had an agenda. Well, he did. He had an agenda of making people laugh in the middle of the night and feel comfortable and feel welcome. Uh, 
Um, and those phone calls to phone booths, I remember, you know, some drug dealer in Monaco would pick up the phone. <laughs> what a great big gimmick. It, it's sort of based a little bit on uh, what Steve Allen did in the old Tonight Show way, way back in the 50s. But Norm was was a unique character. He he had a 50 plus year career, you know, in Boston radio and was he loved it. Yeah, I think that I think the uh, cold phone call is illegal now. I believe so. And where are there phone booths? I mean, I don't even know if there are any phone booths around. You're bound Superman to- has to change in, in the men's room, I guess. You're bound to get somebody shady if they do answer a phone call from a phone booth uh, this year anyway. Yes. Okay, so you're in uh, – it's RKO in the 80s, and um, I seem to recall – and I've, I've been cramming your book uh, just starting this morning. Um, you Your first whacking uh, comes around soon, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody gets whacked and some people get whacked a whole lot more than I've ever been. But uh, I was remember now I was starting at just about 19. I was now 23. I've been there four years. It was 1982. And uh, the fact that I had survived so long with a format change and multiple generals, general managers was pretty incredible now that I look back on it. But anyway, uh, I just got married. I just back from my honeymoon and uh, got a phone call, not even a in-person whacking, but a phone call. Thank you. You've been great, but see you later. And that was, that's been the, that's been the sort of habitual way it's been done. Thank you. You're so good. We really appreciate you. Goodbye. Never touch our doorstep again. Never cross the doorway again. And and you know what I'm talking about, Tom. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, you and your, and your, your colleagues and people in the business. So yeah, it was, it was a whack. And I had, here's what I had to do. I had to Figure out, let's see, I went from 10 watts to 50,000. Now I've got zero watts. What do I do next? And you're yeah. newlywed. So now you got to ideally make some money, money. Well, then you've yeah, got I, I, uh, Yeah. Well, Go no, not, then you've got the business. Well, the business that is uh, still here, and we're, we're in the process of moving it one more time here, but that's just logistics, uh, is called Chart Productions. And I started it with uh, a guy you know, Ken Carberry. We met in college. And at the time, it was pickup work anywhere we could get it, doing voice work and so forth, building a studio patchwork. And we weren't making the kind of money to support a family by any stretch. So I was always using radio as another supplement to my income. And, and you guys, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and so I was faced with, uh, you know, the situation that so many people are faced with in the industry. You know, what do you do when you lose a really good gig? How do you get back in the game? So we can talk about that, but that's where I was. So how did you get back in the game? Well, it's, as you know, uh, it's all about who you know and contacts you make. And one of my life lessons I always like to leave people with is, you know, never, ever uh, mistreat anybody, especially Mm -hmm. doormen and secretaries, but never mistreat anybody on the way up. So I had uh, an office in Park Square in Boston. We shared an office and it was, it was nothing fancy, but in, of the office was an extra room that we had uh, rented out sublet to uh, a sales guy from a radio station, WSSH. Um, And that's how I got the job, not there at SSH right yet, just yet, but apparently they had a talk show and you're in the Lowell market. So you know what I'm talking about. WLLH community radio station, a fine station. They had a talk show host who was leaving at 6 p.m., weeknights and they offered me a job. Now, when I say they offered me a job, it didn't pay much at all. And it was a hell of a commute every day. And I wouldn't get home till 10, but I said, I got to take this. 
got to get some credentials back and experience back. So I ended up doing a talk show for a year, uh, subbed on the weekends with uh, WSSH, went back on the air as a disc jockey, hadn't done that really since my days in college. And uh, and after about a year or two, I, they offered me the morning show at SSH FM back to 50,000 watts. And and that's that saga, that chapter. So SSH FM, you're obviously spinning records as well there. Yep, playing music at that time. Um, it was a very popular station north and west of Boston, particularly uh, adult contemporary. And most people are familiar with Magic 106.7 in the Magic format. This was very much like that. Easy listening, but adult easy listening. And I, I had a morning show now that was my own. And talk about running the board. That was really fun. And I could do what I could with limitations, you know, um, playing a lot of music and adding personality to to it as as it came up. So one of the things that you get into that I love, that I love, that people it, people who have dealt with middle management or certainly people who have been in radio can understand are you're dealing with program directors who who have these never-ending arbitrary rules. Um, and uh, is this where you said goodbye to Jess Kane, by the way? Well, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> the story in the book. I have had the great honor and pleasure and joy of meeting up with so many of my radio heroes and becoming friends with them. Many of whom have long gone to uh, the station in the sky, but Jess Kane, I don't have to mention it, the name to you without you knowing exactly what he meant. An amazing host for 40 plus years on WHDH mornings with Jess Kane were a tradition. Anyway, when he was retiring in 1990, uh, everybody knew about it. It was in all the papers. Everybody was talking about it and buzzing about it. Here's this giant. And all I did was at 820 in the morning that day when his last show, I, I just mentioned how honored I was to be in the same industry as Jess Kane and the fact that I had met him and known him, you know, to a certain extent. That's all I said. I, and I said, I have a real tribute to a, a true professional. And I moved on and uh, I called in and what reamed from one end to the other because how dare I mention the competition? Of course, he would be not any longer the competition after, you know, nine o'clock. And I took that very, I took my lumps and I, I fought back very much in the gentlemanly fashion that I would. But I remembered that distinctly as being one of the dumbest, you know, criticisms because, you know, who doesn't recognize the, the talents of someone else. And it, he, I think he thought that everyone would decide to never listen to me again and tune over to that other place because they were just enthralled by my description, whatever it was, it was, it, it stuck with me is kind of silly. But Jordan, it's such typical program director, uh, you know, kind of ideology though, to do that, to get angry for angry sake over a small thing that, that they read in some, how to be a program director manual somewhere that is absolutely dumb and it, and it treats the audience like they're stupid. Don't give out anybody else's call letters because the whole audience will turn you off and go over there. This kind of thinking is so prevalent. Yeah. It still is. Where do they learn? Well, this? you know, you, you're so right. And I'll tell you, um, I, your point about considering the audience and thinking of them as just malleable dolts who just will do whatever you say. I mean, I did the DJ. I was a DJ for many, many years. And, you know, I was constantly being told, You've got to relate to your audience. And we had charts and graphs saying what they liked and what they didn't like. And I'm thinking, well, okay, I can relate to 
real people, uh, you know, and I'll give it the best shot I can. And, you know, inevitably we found out that, uh, like all of us, people are people or we have likes and dislikes. Not everyone fits into the same mold. So that is a problem. And consultancy has been a big issue with radio oh. and TV, uh, needless to say, because you're never going to meet a consultant who doesn't get hired, who doesn't want to change a lot of things. Hence, he's a consultant. <laughs> but yeah, um, I and I, I want to say I, I lived through it all, all, obviously, and have worked for some outstanding, uh, brilliant mm-hmm. programmers and managers far outweigh the other ones but some of the some of the early days man there were some amazing comments that i just rolled my eyes yeah and i've had the same thing where they would some program directors would absolutely and loudly so the newsroom can hear just lose their stuff and (laughs) complain and yell and why are you allowing callers to be on there another 30 seconds after they get to the point what are you doing for god's sakes like what is this song and dance about here well, you know, it, there's there's all kinds of uh, lessons on leadership and and in any field of play or work, and uh, the worst way to get people, especially talented people who have egos, and I'm not saying that I had a, a, a huge ego at all, but talented people who have the the ability, uh, you don't want to embarrass them and mm-hmm. and make them sound and feel inadequate. You know, I. I work with some of the best people who are still on the air, still programming, still doing great work. Uh, Bob Bronson is heading the morning show in the number one FM station in Boston now. Uh, w. Uh, um, is it well, Kiss still or is it? Uh, uh, 105.7. What is that? Uh, ROR? ROR. Right. Thank you. The letters have switched so many times. But I work with some great people and we would, as a collective, feel as though we were in kindergarten at times. And that's, mm. that's the kind of thing that doesn't motivate. Um, I've never been, at, not since college, I've never been a department head or have any role. I do my own thing. Mm. Uh, but I finally got to a point years later, years later, when I got to, to BZ and worked with and for Peter Casey, wrote the forward to my book, by the way, uh, when I felt I was on an even playing field, he was a peer. He was my boss. He mm-hmm. was my director, but he never treated me with anything but respect because he respected my experience and abilities. And I did the same with him. I think it's like anything else. If you, if you keep your head down and you, you do the work, you work hard and you will outlast and, and out survive the Nimrods who really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, I can't even tell you where these guys are and where they went, wound up who were in the driver's seat for many years. Just amazing. It's interesting that you, you, mentioned you know you'd never be mean to a doorman there are some and i know you know this but i've been shocked at how some radio personalities just thrive on being being jerks and being cold uh it's really interesting tom um not that listen i mean not that there haven't been days where i just want to be left alone but the audience the radio audience first of all is is the lifeblood and whether you're doing a podcast or a show Mm -hmm. and I treat them with the utmost respect and admiration and appreciation. That goes without saying. But yeah, I always say this is the most fun business you can ever be in if you love to play and pretend and and motivate and make people happy and make people, you know, inform people. What a great opportunity it is to be in the center of the spotlight. And why would you screw it up by by being a jerk? Although, you know, some jerks are making $105 million a year. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it ain't about the money always. It's uh, reputation too. So I, I, I think we're, I think we're cut from the same cloth here, my friend. Yeah. Is, were you ever tempted as a, well, you said you didn't, you, you didn't want to be a, a jerky. You wanted to treat the audience with, with, um, with respect. Were you ever tempted just looking at the, at Imus and Stern, were you ever tempted to have a sharper, more, you know, fire starter and uh, edge? No way. I, that's not me. I couldn't do it. I, I really couldn't do it. I'd be terrible at it. Um, I could pretend to be an act on a stage or in a play. I would love to play the villain because it's safe. You're playing somebody else. You're not playing yourself. I, I always believed uh, what made me somewhat successful was just being me. I wasn't trying to be anything. I wasn't. At first I was. I think I was trying to be the wise guy and the sharp, you know, one liner guy, um, which, you know, I think I can still sling a one liner with the best of them. But I remember I realized Especially when I got to do talk on a regular basis, I realized you can't fool the audience. The audience absolutely knows. Uh, Jerry, the late Jerry Lewis, you know, hey, lady, that guy used to talk about comedy and suggest that the audiences really know deep down when you're being true to your craft, when you're really mm. focused on the on reality. And even though it's funny stuff, they can tell when somebody's in the moment. And I think the same thing is true with our business. Um, so I know I could never do the I'm a stern thing. I, I've got a spine that's so weak and got conscience. That's <laughs> just, um, I, I don't have any fault, uh, problem saying this. I, I love it when people are happy that I'm doing something. I, I don't want them to be unhappy. In so, sorry. I think that was one of the things that made you such a success and so beloved in, in Boston, in, and really, when you hit BZ, um, you know, especially, you know, working those late nights, uh, people are, you don't know where people are. You don't know where people are emotionally. And, you know, to, to um, I understand there's there's success in being George Norrie and talking about aliens. But if you're talking to people and about people, um, it, 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 I think it behooves you to be, you know, humane. And in the book... You talk about uh, getting a caller who was distraught um, a late one night at BZ, if you remember, um, and uh, and this guy was uh, is in the was in the emotional basement. And can you uh, just tell us that story real quickly? Yeah, I mean, this is one example. I, I probably could have written about ten examples, in some to varying degrees. Um, this was a gentleman uh, called at four a.m. or four ten, and uh, uh, his name, I remember his name on the call line was Joe and Joe was really down in the dumps. And at that point, you know, in the show, after four or five hours, it's just open season, whatever people want to say, hello, whatever. And a lot of people, you know, be on their way to work. But this guy was really forlorn because his divorce was horrible. He lost custody of his child or the oblivious seer. He lost his job. He was really down. He didn't have any money. He was uh, now. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't play one on the radio, but I. It, you could tell he was very depressed. I know a little bit about that. So, what I did was talk through him uh, with him, talk to him, I should say, and we kept him on for a good 15 minutes to just kind of talk it out and uh, got his name and address so that we could offer him some help. I sent him some books the next day, but I also said, you know, if you need help right now, I gave him the Samaritans number mm. because that's what you do. And uh, okay, so fast forward about uh, 20 minutes after that phone call, and I, we reflected on it. I talked about it. 
uh, we had a psychiatric nurse call in and say, Joe, you should know you're not alone. We can help you, et cetera. Eight months go by. I don't hear from Joe. I didn't really have the ability to track him down beyond the address. And he calls, a guy calls Lavelle Diet, who was on right before me at midnight, and tells the story about eight months earlier how he had been on the phone with somebody at BZ, who happened to be me. Hmm. And uh, that phone call changed his life because he listened to that woman, the nurse. He got the help. He since rebuilt his life, got a job, now sees his daughter, cured his or healed from his depression and didn't do the worst possible thing. So those are little things, you know, not little things to me. It was a huge deal for me. It, it restored my faith in the power of the medium uh, to do good. And uh, a lot of the times doing the late night show, I felt more like a, 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 a not a minister because I wasn't ministering, but just a, a therapist, healer, you know, just listening to people, just letting them get some steam off or express their own story. And uh, I gained a lot of uh, understanding and empathy doing it much more than I ever thought I would. You know, it's a, it's a great story and something obviously I'm, I'm sure that the, that fills you with pride. But spending all those nights listening to people, really listening to hear somebody talk and then just wait for your turn to talk back is one thing, but to really listen it requires incredible concentration and processing everything they say and how they say it, you know, in between, you know, the mechanics of being a radio, et cetera. Do you think doing that again and again and again, is that, do you think that's healthy for a, a, a talker? Cause well, it all depends. I mean, it, there's a lot of uh, negativity in, in media today, social and otherwise, mm. obviously. And there's a lot of stuff, whether it be sports radio or, or political talk. My deal was was always, and I learned from Norm, was always to uh, uh, invite the audience in, maybe tickle them a little bit through the night, have some fun, have a lot of interesting guests, and allow people, uh, give them a, uh, a spotlight so that they could tell their story. Now, obviously, you can't just allow anybody in to do their thing and, and take over. But within, with certain limitations, and that was a great, great um, step forward for the show because a lot of people would tell me during the week, "Hey, you know, I was fascinated by that old lady who called about her record collection," or "I was really listening to that kid who's a motorcycle, you know, rider, and he was talking about the helmets," or "I was talking about uh, could have been anything." I mean. Uh, woman called up to talk about her mother with Alzheimer's and it was very touching. I mean, a lot of it was sentimental, but some of it was just goofy, funny stuff. I didn't bother me. It made me a better person. So I don't know about other guys and gals who do this kind of thing. I do know that it's, it's tougher sometimes to be listening at three o'clock in the morning, right? Because it's three o'clock in the morning and you have to really, really pay attention. So, um, Great lessons in life, though, for me overall. Great lessons in life. You uh, you experienced another. Um, I'm not sure if it was a great lesson in life, though. But in Stoneham, Massachusetts, uh, Jordan, you say in the book, in an incredibly di- divergent uh, call um, uh, chapter from the rest, you had a uh, life changing, horrific experience in Stoneham, Mass. And uh, can you tell us in an obscure place too? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Um listen, crime and, and violence can happen to anybody. And it does. I had re- gotten off the air in, in Woburn at WSSH at 10 AM. 
and drove over to a little repair shop where I had an amplifier as a DJ on the mobile side. And I went over to pick it up. It was just a simple 10 o'clock in the morning, bright, sunny day, October, went to pick it up. And that's when it happened. I was uh, sort of grabbed from behind. I felt the nuzzle of a shotgun or whatever, a sawed-off shotgun on my neck and uh, told the, uh, I'll clean it up, the don't move or we will do something nasty to you. And then uh, was brought up uh, to a little landing upstairs. I saw the three owners tied up, hands behind their back. Anyway, long story short, these guys were robbing the store and uh, obviously they were looking for anything they could get. They took my wallet and keys, of course, and didn't take my car, which was interesting. It was a new car. But um, yeah, that was 20 minutes of being suspended in the, in midair thinking this could be it. And you get a, it's a strange feeling uh, that, uh, and it made, it, it, it led to a lot of self-reflection. It's the sense that this is something happening to somebody else. It's a movie and you're mm. watching this movie unfold. And as it's unfolding, my wife at the time was pregnant, uh, eight months pregnant. And I was waiting for the arrival of another child. And I thought, Holy moly, I may not, live to see my next child arrive. And then I thought, this is really a bummer because if I'm going to get killed and die in a, in a crime of violence, really stone them. <laughs> that was weird, man. Sorry about that. No, we couldn't have planned it any better, Jordan. Uh, if you've been listening, we, it probably sounds a little bit different because uh, we, uh, yeah, we, that's okay. we dropped out, but um it's kind of along the lines of what we were talking about. Okay, so you survive the uh, the the great Stoneham attempted assassination, um, and <laughs> you you get into BZ, and um, so so by the time you got to BZ, Robert uh, Bradley is back there. Yes, yes, David was was there, and of course Norm was there. I had worked with Norm at RKO, mm-hmm. and I um, and what happened was I was asked to fill in. Um, in September of uh, 96, I believe, yeah, September, I was asked to fill in for Norm Nathan, my all-time great friend and hero. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity that is. And it all happened because I had known a fellow who's still at BZ, done a couple of favors for him when we were neighbors in Radioville in Brighton. And he remembered me and he knew I was out of work for several months and said, would you like a, a, to do us a favor and fill in? I said, I'd love to. So I did at one time, uh, had laryngitis that night, the worst ever. Oh, Jesus. Like, oh, I know that you're, you know, I figured, Tom, I actually figured I'd get a chance one time if I could just say to my grandchildren, I worked at WBZ one time. <laughs> and at one time I had no voice because, well, it's a long story. Anyway, uh, did the show and had a wonderful uh, experience. And then uh, a short time later, a couple of months later, Norm, who had been in ill health, uh, passed away suddenly. And for about two months after that, everyone was really saddened. Mm. Um, they had asked me and, and others, including Dave Maynard and others, to just fill in. They didn't want to just, you know, throw syndicated shows in there. So I filled in for a couple of months, and that's when Peter Casey, the program director at the time, said that he would like me to do it if I wanted it because I most am sort of um, – most mirrored the kind of show Norm had done. I was very touched by that. So that's mm-hmm. how it started. 
Very nice. So, um, you know, you do say in the book, the book is called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. There's some great accounts of um, of your interviews with some guests, some some wonderful, some not-so-wonderful uh, personalities. And so I'll let folks gra- grab the book. Buy the book. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle, or buy the hard copy. You can get it. You can watch that stuff there. It's great stuff. But I do want your quick takes on some of the folks that you worked with, some of the radio legends like uh, Brother. Absolutely. Yeah, David Brodnoy was uh, a brilliant, brilliant academician, but as brilliant as he was with two doctorates, he was one of the most down-to-earth, friendly gentlemen you, you could ever work with. He treated the staff, particularly the producers, with such uh, kindness. And uh, the, the takeaway lesson, though, that I learned from, from David, I'll tell you two quick David Brodnoy stories. One was always read the book if you're interviewing mm-hmm. Even if you scan it, read it, know what the book is about. The other uh, story about Brodnar, he used to, he was a movie reviewer, as you may recall. Yep. That was his other passion, his vocation. And there was one time I ended up with uh, Kenny, my partner. We were in uh, Boston at the time. We went across the street to the 57, no longer a movie theater. And we went to see a movie called Zelig. Um, no, I'm sorry. I went to see a, a James Bond movie, and Brodnar was there reviewing it. So we sat together in Kibitzed, and I had mentioned to David, uh, I loved his review of Zelig, the Woody Allen film. And uh, he said, yeah, no, I, he says, I really like the film too. I said, but it's getting a lot of negative attention. He said, well, they, critics have called it a one-joke movie, but in David Brodnoy's words, it was one hell of a joke. <laughs> so I remembered that. But he, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And what he did so effortlessly was allow people of different... Um, different points of view to talk with him and debate him in a civic, beautiful, civil sense of discourse that's long gone. You don't get that kind of conversation uninterrupted. So I really, really respected him. Um, did you ever go to his, uh, because he broadcast, broadcast from his place. So I've heard from folks in his inner circle that he would, um, he was, he was renowned for, you could hang out at his place and he would make martini. And he was an expert yeah. martini maker. They they did the show from uh, Beacon Hill, where he lived, um, Back Bay, for many years. Because he had taken ill and so forth, he bounced back. And the guys who used to go over there and produce the show, man, they had a ball. <laughs> Smoking and drinking, and uh, it wasn't that much of a uh, uh, Roman orgy or anything. But it was just, it was very <laughs> relaxed. And you'd have people like uh, David Halp and all these amazing guests, you know, Dr. Silver from BU, they would come over to the apartment and, you know, they sit down and have a drink, a scotch or a martini, and then you're loosened up for the show. But it was, uh, it was quite a, quite a situation that he had going there. He was, he was tremendous. Yeah. I wish I'd gotten, I, I was a caller. I called you, I called him, I called Norm Nathan. So I was a caller, but I wish I'd gotten to meet him, uh, you know, you know, kind of as a colleague or friend um so nice a man so nice a man and uh how about gene burns i never i only met gene burns one time i was a huge fan i i loved his ability to monologue and and that's a bad thing monologue is an important issue when it comes to talk radio his ability to formulate these beautifully written and beautifully delivered treatises on the constitution or on any issue of the day and his use of language, and of course, he had another passion, um, like Brodnoy's was movies. His was food and restaurants and cuisine. 
So a, a full Renaissance man, very bright, very, very, and a voice, my God, his voice was amazing, powerful, deep baritone. So um, I admired him from afar, met him once, and really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to do that. Uh, Jerry Williams? Now, Jerry is an interesting case. Um, I grew up listening to Jerry, as I'm sure you did, always cantankerous, always <laughs> or a contrarian approach. But as he grew older, um, you know, he had issues that he took up that were very, very important to him. The new Braintree prison issue, the seatbelt issue. And he was one of the last of the populists on radio who could rally people to really get things done. And uh, sadly, towards the end, um, you know, he was sort of pushed aside by others and not allowed to do what he had done. And he lost a little bit off his fastball. But at the end of his life, about, I'm going to say a year before he passed, I was uh, asked by, uh, you may know this fellow, Alan Tolles, who was Jerry's producer for a while. Do you know him? I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. Alan, who happens to do the best Jerry Williams impression of anybody on the planet because he knew him so well, had a project in mind with a fellow named Steve Elman to write a book about Jerry Williams. And I thought, well, that's a great idea, Alan. Good, good for you. Go for it. He said, I have a request. Would you be willing to come down to Marshfield where Jerry lives and interview him for the book? And it'll be several sessions. And I said, absolutely. So we would go down to uh, Marshfield with a tape recorder and I would sit there with Jerry and we'd bring him a corned beef sandwich because <laughs> you have to bring something to the master. And, uh, I got stories and that nobody had ever heard before about great people. And he showed us this book. It was a uh, white, uh, like a guest book you'd see at a wedding. And inside were the signatures and notes of people from Malcolm X to Hmm. Fitzgerald to the King of Jordan to George McGovern. I mean, every big name you can imagine. And it was all in this one book. He was an amazing character. Um, to say that he was, you know, he was the guy who never got a dinner. He was quick to argue and quick to give it right back to you is an understatement. But he was a, a real character. I really enjoyed meeting him. It's interesting, too, because in those days, in, in the 80s, people forget. I mean, I know that's the second time around in the 80s. But those phone calls with the sex survey, et cetera, that was pretty Damned edgy. I think a lot of people, younger people, think we we've now invented edgy broadcasting, but no way. It was uh, it was the real thing. Well, that that was such an anomaly at the time. It was going back to the seventies and the eighties when he would ask people this. It's Cosmo Sex Survey, and today it's nothing. I mean, you hear that stuff all over the place. But Jerry was because he's a showman and because he knew how to. He had done some acting in, in his younger years, and he'd done some stand-up type stuff. He played it like a violin, man. He was <laughs> Just his reaction shots were great. But he also, uh, you know, was was known for not uh, putting up with a lot of guff from politicians, and he gave it right mm. back. He was a, a people's defender, and a lot of people disagreed with him, but in the end you had to respect him for sticking to his guns um and boy he stuck to his guns on a lot of things yeah i remember a particular call uh with um right after round deregulation with uh, ted kennedy calling in 
and those two going at it like a dogfight. It was incredible. All right, so the book is – I have – Jordan Rich is trying to move here. I have uh, interrupted this. <laughs> the book is On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. This book is fantastic. I'm at page 189 right now. I've just been burning through this today. It is – if you're into Boston radio or broadcasting at all, you don't have to be from Boston – um, this is such a great uh, story of not only the, pr- the procedures you. and the processes, but the stories are fantastic. There's a story in this book which is really maybe one of the beautiful stories I've ever read in my wife, my, my, my wife, your wife, about your wife, your first wife, Wendy. Um, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever, ever, I've ever read, and um, I'm not going to talk about it because I'll just simply cry, Jordan, because it's a beautiful story. Um, and um, But check that out. Buy this book. It is a great, great read. If um, we didn't get to a lot of stuff, I wanted to get. I mean, you became a big star doing stuff in the Esplanade every year, and uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm interested <laughs> in so much of your life here that I I don't mind getting uh, you know caught in the, in the minor details. Uh, Once again, the book is on air. My 50 year love affair with radio. Are you on Twitter, Jordan? Uh, is, you know, not really that. Twitter. I, I do have a Twitter account. It's at Jordan WBZ, but I I really do Facebook and LinkedIn is my mainstays. Uh, Facebook is Jordan Rich Show, and people are welcome to go there. And my website has details on the book, which, by the way, Tom, if I can just mm-hmm. add this one, uh, and I'm not doing this. I, I, di- I didn't write it for, for any profit. I'm dedicating and donating every penny of profit, if you will, every royalty that I get to Children's Hospital in Boston. So people know that they buy in the book, they're helping out kids as well. Well, that is great. That is great. Well, it's been an honor, Jordan Rich. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the move, and we'll talk to you down the road. Tom, this was a pleasure, and uh, you are a true radio guy and a man after my own heart. Thanks so much. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.